This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Hey kids, let's go out to the garage and make some new life forms. Get ready, because that's already happening. We'll talk with Pat Mooney, founder of the Etc. Group, about crazy new technology on the loose. Then well-known journalist Stephen Kotler takes us on a tour of eco-psychology in 10 easy steps. Is it a diversion for comfortable people in coffee shops, or is it the answer? I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Last week's program on strange record-breaking developments in the Arctic is still waving out into the Twittersphere, still heavily downloaded. You can listen for free at soundcloud.com, Radio EcoShock, or download any of our past programs from our website at ecoshock.org. This week's climate horror story was pretty predictable. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have reached new levels above 404 parts per million. Just 10 years ago, when I started this show in 2006, it was big news when CO2 hit a record high of 381 parts per million. Greenhouse gases are still climbing, and they are increasing faster than ever before. Scientists used to talk about two parts per million added every year. Now it's over three parts per million for the second year in a row. From February 2015 to February 2016, CO2 levels jumped 3.76 parts per million. The rate of carbon emissions increases are not constant. There is an increase on the increase every year. Unless we go into a crash program to save ourselves, catastrophe is right around the corner. Despite the Paris Peace Agreement, government bragging, corporate propaganda, and our own pride when we walk or turn off a light switch, humanity and all the species are hurtling ever faster towards rising seas, an ocean more acid, crop-crushing droughts, and extreme weather. Some plants and animals will not be able to adapt fast enough. They will not survive. Will humans? But climate change is just one face of a revolution in human interference in natural systems. Let's look into synthetic life, a plague of new nanomaterials, and the joys of gene drives. You may be wearing clothes created with synthetic biology and eating food laced with nanotubes. A weird future has arrived without much in the way of warning labels. Our guest Pat Mooney will be your guide. Pat founded a group in 1977 looking into food, agriculture, and commodities. In 2001, it was renamed the Etc. Group with offices in Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and the Philippines. If it's controversial, the Etc. Group probably has a report on it. Pat Mooney, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. It's nice to be back. Thank you. Your latest Etc. Group newsletter has a little humor and a lot of shocking news. I'd like to go through some of it with you. Why don't we start with the scary new industry called synthetic biology? What is that, Pat? Well, it's sometimes called extreme genetic engineering or genetic engineering on steroids. Rather than moving a gene from one species to another, which is the usual GMO strategy, What this does is allow you to actually modify the DNA of uh, existing germplasm, whatever it's a plant or an animal or whatever, and make it into whatever you want. So you actually build the DNA. You don't move something from one species to another. You actually say, okay, let's just tweak the DNA as it is, the CGTs and A's that we all learned about in school to make up the double helix. 
and we'll convert it into uh, whatever qualities, uh, materials that we think would be useful at the end of the day. And can I truly go to a store right now and buy something made from synthetic biology? Yes, you can. Um, there's uh, You can buy vanilla. If you're in Europe, at least, you can buy vanilla that is uh, a product of synthetic biology rather than being grown in a, in a field in, or in a forest in Madagascar. It's, it's being brewed in a vat in, in Switzerland. Uh, a number of flavor and fragrance commodities, uh, including uh, crops like stevia, the, the so-called you know, the wonder non-sweetener kind of, and, and soft drinks and so on, is being developed now, is also now being brewed in a vat. Many other commodities may be in the next few years. Uh, cotton, the same way, they're looking into uh, modifying cotton through synthetic biology. Some of the so-called biofuels that are supposed to power our cars and get rid of fossil carbons uh, are also being uh, developed uh, using synthetic biology, though that doesn't seem to be working nearly as well for them. And now we don't even need a room full of people in white coats to make these new life forms. Your Etc. Group newsletter talks about a company offering, quote, a fully robotic cloud-based biotech lab. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, now what can be done is it's possible to literally uh, go to uh, a field, identify a plant that you might think is useful. You can sample the DNA of that plant on the spot. You can beam it up into a, into a cloud, a, data, you know, a big data cloud, uh, where anyone else can download it off the Internet and, and uh, have its full genetic description there and adapt that then to uh, modify it again to, with, through synthetic biology to make it whatever commodity they want to be. So they could, you could find a medicinal plant in the Amazon, you could put it on in the internet cloud, and then someone else could use a DNA synthesizer to adjust it to whatever where they want to make it. All right. Now, Pat Mooney, what is going on with labeling of synthetic biology products and also with international efforts to regulate them? Well, not much. I mean, there is movement, I'm glad to say, but it's been very, very slow. What we've got now is, is a, a, a major concern by some companies. Uh, some of the major flavoring fragrance companies are concerned about this. They're not sure that this product will be well received by customers. A lot of the natural products companies want to ban it all out. Companies like Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company, have said they won't use synthetic biology in any of their products. And we think several other companies will take the same position. Those discussions are going on right now. But there is, uh, because no one, again, there's no regulation as such. It's being treated as simply as a normal product. Uh, no one has to sort of do something special to, to get it approved for use in our food or crops or our forests or anything else. Wow. This is the Wild West of genetic playgrounds. So your group has put out an educational video with the Heinrich Boll Foundation about this. We have, and, and uh, it's aimed at farmers. It's trying to get them to realize what the implications are if their commodities that they're growing are at risk, that they might disappear the next day, literally, or very soon because of this new challenge. But we're also trying to reach out to the uh, Codex Alimentare, which is the, the body in the United Nations uh, organized by the World Health Organization together with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization to deal with uh, uh, how you do monitor and regulate natural products. We're hoping that Codex will come around and say that they don't think that this should be treated as a natural product that has to uh, involve new regulations and, and uh, start to work toward that. We're also working with the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, which is based in Montreal in Canada, uh, which is uh, does have now a working group on synthetic biology, which is an intergovernmental working group, but we're part of that group as well. 
and we're trying to look at well what regulations are required and they're they're moving fairly quickly on it there's there's a, an alarm at what's being developed they know that this has real implications for biological diversity and survival they know it has implications for our food system as well so so they they do want to do something we expect that by the end of this year there'll be a meeting in in Mexico of the this the convention on biological diversity of all of the member governments about 195 member governments that will sit down and try to sort out what regulations are required. All right. Now, Pat Mooney, before we get back to freaky sci-fi products now on the markets, let's relax a little in the world's forests, except that news is hardly relaxing. Apparently, satellites have been misreading the amount of the Amazon rainforest lost to agriculture. Can you tell us briefly about that? Well, the satellites were missing large strips of the Amazon. They just weren't hitting that area, and they thought they were covering everything, and they weren't, so so they're misjudging. Uh, how much biological diversity there was and how much biomass there was in the Amazon by about 20-25%. They're not entirely sure how much they misjudged it by. Uh, they've also been misjudging the amount of biomass because they're finding that, that with climate change, the trees are growing faster, but they're not living as long. And so that that means, again, that, that uh, the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is probably higher than was expected, and the amount that's being stored is probably half of what was expected. And that, that really changes, again, our understanding of what the forest role is in, in uh, protecting us from climate change. So that, that's kind of been a shock to the scientists doing the satellite work and, the, and to the rest of us. It's not unusual, I must say, that we, we've also found that over the years, the, you think with climate change, there'd be more and more satellites monitoring the climate. There have actually been less and less in the last several years. They haven't been replacing the ones that have been dropping out of the sky. And the num- number of instruments on some of the satellites is also less than it was before. So we tend to be, you know, I think the Economist magazine called it willful myopia, uh, deliberately choosing not to, to, to know the bad news of what's happening with the climate. And in other bad news I would never have known without your etc. group newsletter, it turns out a huge amount of deforestation is carried out by slaves. I thought slavery was over, and, and, and what are they doing with the forests? Well, they're often the ones that are used, um, dentured slaves, to, to do the forest clearing, which is illegal. An awful lot of, of uh, the forest products that we use, some some argue, UNEP, UN Environment Programs argue that it's perhaps as high as 75 to 90%, 90% of, of all forest products, tropical forest products, are illegal. And a lot of that illegal forestry is, is done, again, by children and, and adult slaves who have no choice but to do that job. The last study that came out was at the end of last year, at the end of 2015, estimated between 35 and 39 million people uh, are still in slavery around the world. Let's switch to energy. A few months ago, just before the Paris talks, I broadcast a speech by UK scientist Kevin Anderson. He says there's a big lie built into the IPCC reports and the climate talks. All their plans and scenarios assume any day now will deploy carbon capture and storage, known as CSS. And that'll let us carrying on burning fossil fuels. Pat Mooney, what do you say about that? Well, Kevin Anderson's quite right. He's one of the best scientists in the world on, on climate change, and, and he's been dead on as, over the years as he's done his predictions and projections as to what is going on. What was being said in Paris was a huge lie. It was saying that we can get somehow keep the temperature below 2 degrees or even 1.5 degrees, and even though what governments are pledging to do by their own emission cuts won't get us there. Don't worry, folks. We, uh, we'll take care of that through this idea of carbon capture and storage. 
will suck it out of the atmosphere after it's gone out there or will catch it at the uh, smokestack and bury it in the ground somewhere. Well, that's a nice idea. It sounds cute, but the reality is that technology doesn't exist. Uh, even those supporting the technology don't believe they'll actually make it functional until 2050 or so. That's way too late if we keep on emitting at the way we are, at the rate we are now. But even then, many scientists believe that, frankly, it can't be done at all. That, that uh, tr- the idea that you can take a gas and bury it way down somewhere in, in the, the the granite of the planet somewhere and, and keep it there is unlikely. It'll seep back up again. So it's it's a myth that it's, uh, we can do this and to suggest that. And, and this is, of course, what does happen is that we use the idea of carbon and capture and storage as an excuse for just carrying on with business as usual. Don't worry, folks, we'll take care of it eventually, so carry on driving your SUVs, everything's going to be fine. Well, it's not going to be fine. We're going to have a temperature rise of 3.3 to 3.6 degrees, or perhaps higher, by 2100, if we continue as we are now. And that's a mess. Well, the fallback position for the fossil fuel companies and all of us who want to keep driving cars forever seems to be geoengineering. The international community has managed to stall geoengineering in the real world, except maybe for Russ George, who we talked about a few years ago. How is the dialogue going? Well, it's we're losing the battle, I'm afraid. We, we have a United Nations agreement that geoengineering uh, shouldn't be allowed. That's accepted in the UN. But it's a very soft agreement. It's not it doesn't have the weight of, of a police force behind it, so governments can go ahead and do what they want to if they want to finally. And what we are doing with the Paris kind of decisions is we're getting trapped into a situation where around 2035 or so, we will have actually used all of the carbon dioxide we can possibly put into the atmosphere for this century. And we still have 65 years to go. At that stage, without carbon capture and storage, and we will not have carbon capture and storage, then governments will look around and say, well, we have no choice but to manipulate the planet. We have no choice but to do something called solar radiation management where we blow sulfates into the stratosphere, a bit like an artificial volcano, and we block just enough of the sunlight to keep the temperature lower. So we can artificially drop it by two degrees or three degrees if we feel the need to do that. What's very attractive about solar radiation management or geoengineering is that it kind of works. It's pretty cheap. Uh, At least uh, the direct costs are pretty cheap, not the indirect costs. And uh, it can be done without the United Nations. It can be done by a single government or a coalition of the willing, maybe of Russia or China or the United States together, saying they'll do it on behalf of everybody else. So they will take control of the planetary thermostat. They'll manipulate the temperature themselves for the rest of us. And that's a pretty scary thought, that, that they would even contemplate doing that. We're backing ourselves into a corner where that's going to be hard to get out of. We're getting... Major governments, the German government, the American government, uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the the UK, all sort of quietly doing their own studies, issuing their own scientific reports, and they're public, many of them, uh, saying that we have to test this model out. We have to see if we can block sunlight, if we can sort of postpone at least uh, climate change. All of the, the computer studies that have been done, the simulations by computers of how you'd model solar radiation management, show that it is possible to reduce the damage in the northern temperate zones. Think how you do it exactly. But if you do that, so you make it a bit safer for us in Canada, the United States, and, and uh, northern Europe and so on, Central Europe even, if you do that, you actually devastate northern South America, sub-Saharan Africa, and possibly, the models vary a bit, possibly uh, South Asia as well. 
So the majority of the world's population would be disadvantaged, but uh, our part of the world might do a little bit better than it would otherwise. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Pat Mooney. He's the executive director of the Etc. Group. We're talking about wild developments in technology. And here's another idea that can't go wrong. Do-it-yourself gene splicing. Pat Mooney, please tell me that's not happening for commercial products. Oh, yes, it is. Um, not much is commercial at this stage, but it's, it's a bit of a, a strange thing. It, it's like um, probably looked at 3D printing, uh, the idea that you can sort of print your own uh, fridge gadgets and so on, or, you know, magnets and so on by, by a little desktop kind of printer that could, like, like a like a, a normal printer that you have with your computer. It goes back and forth and it builds up black ink and you've got your printed page. Well, you can do the same thing building parts. And now, well, that's been, been done now for the last several years in terms of building uh, fridge magnets. Now it's possible to actually build DNA. And so we're seeing people buy for perhaps $400. They can go to eBay and get themselves a secondhand uh, gene synthesizer. Uh, synthesizer is about the size of a printer. You put it on your desk. You've got four tubes stuck into it for the A, C, G, and T of DNA. You use your laptop to design the material that you want, and you build it, and you've got yourself perhaps a fluorescent plant, or you've got, which may not live or survive, but you can kind of do it, or you can put together some unique, again, some unique genetic material that may well live and do something, a microbe or something might be built that way. That's being done now. There there are fluorescent plants out there, fluorescent cats as well, I think, for that matter, and, and uh, rabbits uh, that have been built this way. They don't live, but uh, they are doing it. And it means an individual can do it, not just a company or, or a quack scientist, but actually just pe- kids uh, playing around can, can build some of this stuff. We think it's, of course, dangerous. It, it, uh, you know, 99.9% of the time, or even more, or even less, actually, the, this material will not work. It won't be a threat to anybody. But perhaps 0.001% of the time, they could escape into nature and cause real devastation. Yes, fluorescent cats take over the world. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Now, in your newsletter, you talk about a technology I'd never heard of, and the the initials of it are C R I S P R, clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. What the heck <laughs> yeah. is that, and why should we care? Well, it, it it's uh, again an upgrading of 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 what we think of as as biotechnology or genetically modified uh, organisms again its ability to move a lot of dna around very simply and easily uh, the problem with genetically modified crops for example is it's very very expensive it costs 136 million dollars to develop a new plant variety that's genetically modified so that's not cheap with this crispr technology you can perhaps cut that down to a small fraction of that cost. You can actually make much greater modifications to the DNA of a plant or an animal than you could other, or a human for that matter, than you, than you could otherwise. Attached to the CRISPR technology is something called gene drivers, where you can actually take a trait. Like, like, like normally, if, if uh, a plant or, or, or humans have uh, a, a genetic propensity of some kind that doesn't really advantage us as people or the plant, it ceases to exist. It gets wiped out over time because there's no advantage to maintaining that that negative genetic trait in your system. But with gene drivers, you can take a negative trait and you can make it a dominant gene. 
so that it really spreads like wildfire throughout mosquitoes, for example, or throughout plants. Uh, so you know, from, you can go from being almost nothing to being pre- prevalent in, in a crop or in a field or in a forest. And that's what's happening with this CRISPR technology together with gene drivers is that you can take, uh, a, let's say, a, a pest-resistant uh, plant of some kind, and you can take that trait and you can put it so it's, make it ubiquitous in nature so that everyone's got that same trait in it very, very quickly. You can take a mosquito you can that gives you malaria, and you can embed in that mosquito a trait that makes it sort of it causes it to die quite quickly, or so they can't reproduce, and that can spread throughout all the entire mosquito population of at least that species, which can sound good. It can sound like that's a real benefit to us. You get rid of mosquito malaria that way in theory, but of course, once you let out a trait like that, which is negatively you know negative to the species, what if it spreads to other species? But if the mosquito bites something else, that then gets that trait, and and then we lose that diversity as well. So we just don't know where this technology will finally take us. It's uh, it's rather than having a pesticide in the field that kills off some some pests, you're actually letting that instead letting that pesticide run, jump the fence and run into the forest and cause damage in the forest as well. We're quite worried about what that will do for biological diversity in the planet and, and how rapidly sort of very negative traits might spread in populations. Okay. You've just scared the pants off me when I'm thinking about where that could go. Moving on, another buzzword a few years ago was nanotech. How is that coming along? Well, well as far as we know, more than 3,000 consumer products in the marketplace today that use nanotech, they range from everything from clothing to tennis rackets to parts of your car and your your computer to uh, packaging for food products to pesticides in the in the uh, in crop spraying, uh, it's almost everywhere. It's still again almost entirely unregulated. Well, that is changing. We first warned about this in in uh, 2001, saying that it could be dangerous. We called for a moratorium on nanotechnology in 2003, and that was ignored. Now we got, even like last week, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris, the, the rich countries club, said that this is really dangerous and that there's got to be sort of emergency moves to sort of regulate this because it, it can be quite dangerous in nature. When you deal with nanoparticles, nanomaterials, you're talking about materials that could be one billionth of a meter in size, an extraordinarily small, one, one eighty thousandth of the width of a human hair you know, eight or ten uh, atoms wide. And material of that size, what's special about it is perhaps two things. One is, of course, your immune system can't even tell it's there. So when you have molecules of, of this material, it can actually get into your blood system, it can get into your organs, it can cross through the blood-brain barrier, it can pass through the placenta, and your body doesn't know it. So that, that can be a, a, a real threat to us when that happens. The other element that's important in nanotechnology is that the, the materials, uh, carbon, for example, or, or graphite, can change in their qualities as you get smaller in size. I've got a wedding ring on that's, I'm told, is made of gold. Uh, it's totally benign, very safe. People have gold teeth and so on. They're safe for life. It doesn't cause them really any problems. Get down to the nanoscale, and that gold that's so, so benign can become reactive. It can be chemically reactive. It can actually explode. Its colors change. It's... Uh, its conductivity for electricity changes, everything about it changes. And at the nanoscale, because the surface area becomes so much greater, in a sense, it's exposed to, to the world, 
you get these really strange, weird characteristics that, that we don't know how they're going to perform until they're actually out there being used. Now we have, again, something close to probably 4,000 products in, in the marketplace, including sunscreens and so on, that, that I think potentially can be quite dangerous. And finally now, 15 years after the initial warnings went out, we've got government saying, hey, we have a problem here, we better look into it. And at the bottom of all of what we're talking about here, the Etc. Group is working with the United Nations to set up a group to oversee and possibly control technology. I'm pretty pessimistic that we really can. It seems like just what you've been talking about, 3D printing and computers and complex ideas could come out of somebody's basement or the jungle. Can we control technology? I think we can control the environment around it, and, and we can do a lot toward that. I'm not putting a lot of faith in the United Nations to do this. The UN has made some moves in the last uh, 12 months or so, which we think are, are encouraging for that. But what we are creating in that is, is a forum for debate. The UN has not had any capacity to even talk about technologies, really, in a, a broad, sweeping kind of way until now. And so at least now governments will get together on an annual basis. They'll do it in June this year in New York uh, and talk about what's going on out there with technologies. What do we need to be watching for? What's, what's on the horizon? Should we be thinking in advance about what, what has to be done about this? And that, I think, is at least helpful to do. Uh, what's more important, perhaps, than just having the U.N. talk about it is that our partners in civil society, including farmers' organizations, trade unions, uh, unions of concerned scientists, uh, many academic groups as well, are coming together and saying, well, independent of what governments are talking about, what governments are doing, we're going to talk to each other about this. We're going to coordinate together and try to monitor at the national level and at the regional level what we know is going on and provide a kind of an early warning system for governments. And what the UN is going to do is provide an early listening system. We're going to provide the early warning system. And we hope that together, at least, we have some capacity to be aware of, of what's coming down the track. And I think we should be aware that, that if we look back over the years, civil society has been fairly good at identifying what's coming and how that what's coming uh, could have implications for it, good or bad, for our economy, for our environment, and so on. So I think... You know, there is that capacity there. We just haven't had anyone paying attention to it. So maybe now we'll, we'll move towards at least having people pay at least a bit of attention to it. Well, we're starting to run out of time. We're not going to get to Terminator Seeds or blockchain technology. We'll have to leave that to our listeners to Google, or maybe another time we can talk about that. I just want to ask you, back in the 1970s when you started working on issues, did you ever dream you'd experience such a wild tech ride marching into the natural world? No, no, not at all. No, it took us completely by surprise. We we were looking at small things that were happening to seeds, which were small enough in the first place, and, and concerned about biotechnology. And then we discovered that all these other things that were going on. And again, some of them potentially could be quite encouraging and positive. Uh, a lot of them, however, need a lot more thinking. And and uh, unless governments are prepared to address them and think about them carefully, what could be a good technology will be a bad technology. And that that's really sad because we need good technology. Our guest, Pat Mooney, is the executive director of the International Civil Society Organization, the Etc. Group, based in Montreal, Canada, with branches in other countries and co-conspirators all over the world, I'm sure. You can find links to the stories, sources, and reports we've talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. And please keep up with the latest developments at the website, etcgroup.org. That's etcgroup.org. Pat Mooney, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith reporting. 
You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock, the world's weekly journey into the big future. Browse our previous programs free at our website, ecoshock.org, and you can also find contact information for me there. We know the big problems threatening humanity and the natural world. We even have some affordable solutions. So why do we keep driving on so hard? It seems like towards the cliff of extinction. Maybe it's all in the mind. In this program, we'll add to my short list of interviews on eco-psychology. Stephen Kotler is one of those endangered species called a real journalist. He's been published in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, and much more. His best-selling 2012 book, co-authored with Peter Diamandis, is Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. From New Mexico, Stephen Kotler, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me, Alex. Well, I have to admit, I think the future is much worse than you think, but maybe that's my damaged mindset. So let's talk about the really fine article you published in Orion Magazine, Eco-Psychology in 10 Easy Lessons. First of all, Stephen, why did you go bushwhacking in southern Chile, in Patagonia, in fact? Well, one of the foundational principles in eco-psychology is that there's a very kind of deep and fundamental connection between the human mind and the natural world. And a lot of people have pointed out that there are psychological consequences that we're not aware of for you know the destruction that we're imparting on the natural world. And to get really kind of up close and personal with this, you know, in the midst of so much global warming, fear and noise, not, I don't mean hype at all, but I mean like we're hearing it everywhere in, in every direction. If you, if you care about this earth, it's coming everywhere. You know, if you're going to look at eco-destruction, I wanted to see the melting of the glaciers up close and I wanted to sort of apply the principles of eco-psychology and kind of get up close to this absolute killing of the natural world and see what it did to my brain. Well, you know, I had to laugh along with you, Steve, once you were lost in the cold thinking, hey, eco-psychology is just a diversion for people who are warm at home. Is the conversation about the role of our minds just a pastime for first world folks with time on our hands? That trip, my interest in eco-psychology, I wrote a book called A Small Furry Prayer about the relationship between humans and animals. And my wife and I co-run an animal sanctuary in northern New Mexico. And the Small Furry Prayer is sort of about our experiences. And the book was very successful. It was a bestseller. It was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And I went on this giant book tour and 50 cities. And the only people who came to my readings were animal lovers. Nobody, didn't matter how successful the book was, none of that mattered. It was just hardcore animal geeks were the only people showing up. And I started to notice this vast disconnect. It was like I lived in a world where there was nature and there was animals, and I saw these things on a daily basis. But a lot of the people, especially on the other side of my work where I deal with kind of technology and I'm in Silicon Valley and those things, they don't, they don't see the natural world. Even if I'm talking about dogs or the work, the work we do here, they're not hearing me, and it's, it's not coming in. So one of the things that I was looking at is what is the difference? Why are some people able to kind of perceive nature and to really see what's going on, and other people are completely oblivious? That's a, that's a neurological, psychological issue um, with you know, huge political and social and ecological ramifications. So that, that was sort of what set me off there in the first place. And I was really interested in how you tied in James Lovelock's Gaia theory and then how that was brought into eco-psychology by the late Paul Shepard. Can you talk to us about that, Stephen? So 
James Luglock with, with Gaia, right, figured out that the Earth is, is potentially a giant living cybernetic feedback system, right, a, a, sort of a living organism. And what Paul Shepard, who's just a, a, was a brilliant, brilliant mind, brilliant ecologist, kind of realized that if this was true, right, if, if, if the Earth actually is a giant cybernetic feedback organism, and, and you can argue Gaia in all different directions, but there are certainly, you know, there's certainly a lot of interesting proof in the direction that, it, that it's a legit theory at this point. And Shepard said, hey, if this is legit, then if we're one giant living organism, then there are direct connections between the natural world and the human mind. And the, the great and this isn't his, James Serple also kind of poked at this idea. A lot of people have poked at it, but what Paul Shepard kind of pointed out is that, for example, we didn't grow up thinking of animals as other. We actually grew up thinking in animals. They were our first metaphor. They're still the metaphor we reach for. He's as hungry as a wolf. The, the, the terminology goes on and on. But he literally, his argument is we learn to think in animals. We learn to think in nature. It was our first kind of comparisons, our first grounds for comparisons. It's how we learn to navigate the natural world. And these sort of deep structures, to use Claude Levi-Strauss's word, uh, are sort of embedded in our brain. So his argument is that we are experiencing kind of the death of the natural world at a really deep fundamental level that, that goes in so far and so primal and so kind of baked into our evolution that we don't notice the massive damage it's doing. Well, this idea that damage to nature is also damaging our own mental health is gaining more ground. There was a U.S. National Wildlife Federation report on it in 2012 with experts, and I just saw an article about it in a major Canadian newspaper, February 28th. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, you know, the eco-psychology, it's not a new field. It's been around for 30, 40 years at this point. I'm, I'm thinking Theodore Rosek coined the term, I think, in the 70s, uh, maybe in the 80s. But, so it's, the ideas have been around, and they've been percolating a while, and, you know, there is all kinds of very, very, very real science, both on the cause, like we understand some of the neurobiology of what we're talking about here, as well as the effect side. So for sure, I mean, eco-psychology is why they have found that a 20-minute walk in the woods outperforms all the ADHD medicines on the market. We have a deep relation, psychological relationship to nature, and if you want to calm down the brain, walking in natural spaces is more effective than the best drugs we have. And there's study after study after study showing this. That's true. I read about that. That's very true. Okay, now, you also mentioned Laura Seawall and her essay, The Skill of Ecological Perception. I'm not familiar with that one. How does that tie into what you were working on? Essentially, what you're talking about when you're talking about eco-psychology is awareness. And let me, I'm going to talk about this from a neurobiological angle. So every second of every day, your senses take in a massive, massive, massive amount of information. It's been calculated Somewhere between, and this is a ridiculous range, 11 million bits a second and 400 billion bits a second. Whatever it is, it is way, way too much for the conscious mind to process. The extreme outer limit of what we can process consciously, what our working memory can hold on to at once, is essentially 2,000 bits. And it, like most of us really can only hold on to about 120 bits at once. And to put that in context, you're listening to me talk that is taking up 60 bits of RAM in your brain. So there's only about two people talking, and, and that's it. 
So you've got this massive amount of information coming in and a very, very reduced consciousness, very few bits of information. Now, most of your consciousness, because of how the brain is wired up and how information filters through the brain, is filled with stuff that we could possibly be afraid of for obvious evolutionary reasons. We want to survive, so we pay a lot of attention to those things that scare us. It's some significant portion of our consciousness. I've heard numbers all over the place. 70% of the stuff that gets in is one thing that I hear fairly often. It's basically stuff that we might, that we could be afraid of. If you're talking about 2,000 bits coming in a second and 60-70% is taken up by stuff that could kill us or we're worried that could kill us, very little other information is coming through. If you don't care about the natural world, if that's not interesting to you, if you're not noticing, you literally it will be invisible to you. And this is something, you know, we're talking about this very, very theoretically, but I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, a lot of time around a lot of technologists who are taking on grand global challenges, poverty, hunger, water, really significant issues, and yet they live in a world that's very technological. They sit in front of screens all day long. They very rarely get into the natural world, and they don't even see nature. So the very people I believe, and this is sort of what we write about in abundance a little bit, who are best suited to address some of the, the challenges that we're facing, they don't even see the fact that there are challenges out there because they don't see nature because they haven't tuned their brain to appreciate it at all so it can't come in. What Laura Seawall has done, to return back to your original question, is she has sort of broken our what, what, what I'm terming appreciation, what I literally mean is the ability to see the natural world. She's come up with a five-step process with which somebody can kind of learn to see the natural world. It was a process I was playing with when I was down in Patagonia. And, you know, the funny thing about the process, as I, as I pointed out in the article, I went down to Patagonia, and it was already an arduous trip to kind of the end of the earth. But you know, the storm of the century blew in. We had 100-mile-an-hour winds. As you read in the article, I got blown off the side of, like, a 30-foot waterfall and landed in shrubbery because the wind was so fierce. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you're trying to, like, deploy these five steps towards ecological perception, you know, so you can see the natural world at a very point that, like, the natural world is doing nothing but kicking your butt. <laughs> well, you know, if human intelligence was developed over a very long time as hunter-gatherers, is it really any wonder we become so crazy living in these concrete boxes looking at screens where nature's more or less banned, just as you said? Yeah, I, you know, it's, there's certainly no way around it. Everything we know about evolution teaches us that these things are going to be encoded pretty, pretty deep, and to deny ourselves access to it is just, it's significant. And, you know, there's massive mental health concerns. We know being out in the natural world is something that lifts depression. The same reasons, right? Like, we're wired this way. We need that contact. I'll give you a, a crazy, totally separate thing that nobody actually in the world knows exists, but I run a dog sanctuary, and part of our healing methodology is to create an environment, because we work with very, very sick animals, to create an environment using evolutionary psychology that's very, very similar to an environment that dogs evolved in. So dogs evolved in small groups of humans, big groups of dogs, and they all den together, right? Like we slept with dogs. That was one of the reasons we cohabitated with them. The, the phrase three-dog night is literally a night so cold that you need three dogs in the bed to survive, right? It's even in our coded into our language. So here's something that interest, interesting. This is eco-psychology in action. 
dogs have better senses of hearing and better senses of smell than humans. So when you cohabitate with dogs, and this is what we evolved to do, so everybody's hardwired to do what I'm about to explain, what happens is after a little while of kind of sharing your bed with a bunch of dogs, this big pack, is you start outsourcing safety and security. So you have a hypervigilant response in your brain every second. It's kind of screening for danger, right? But dogs smell better. They hear better. They're better danger detectors. So the process naturally, just by cohabitating with dogs, gets outsourced. So when I go, I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of traveling. I'm on the road. The second day I'm in a motel, my body will start to realize there's, I'm not surrounded by dogs, and my vigilance centers will turn back on. And for that entire the second night I'm in a hotel, I won't sleep because every sound wakes me up because I'm not hardwired to actually deal with it. I've evolved, I co-evolved with dogs. I'm hardwired to outsource that to them and let them deal with it. And when that goes away, raises my stress response. I lose sleep. Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your do- Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason. So ask your doctor if nature is right for you. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex, talking with the best-selling author and journalist Stephen Kotler about the prizes and the perils of eco-psychology and many other things. If you'll give me a second, Steve, I'd like to read a short quote from your article, Eco-Psychology in 10 Easy Lessons. After looking at the meltdown of the glacier, you were saying once this meltdown is complete, it will not reverse. The freshly melted water will never become ice again, at least not in any time frame that is fathomable in human terms. What does it feel like to witness these end times, awful like murder, like I'm the one who is melting? So I'm wondering if we can really, Stephen, stand the pain of recognizing ourselves in this eco-psychological mirror. It's an interesting question. Um, 
I think about this a lot because I, I think anybody with any kind of environmental awareness these days, you sort of have to, to function at all in this world, numb a huge portion of yourself, ignore a huge portion of kind of what's going on around you at all times, which, you know, I'm no expert, but I can't think it's healthy. Yeah. You know, I've had guests who've compared our behavior in these times to the mass murders of the Holocaust in World War II. Do you think that's going too far? You know, I think that's a very hot, hot, hot touchy subject, but what, I mean, we've got species die-off rates that are a thousand times greater than normal. It's the sixth great extinction. You're comparing that to a Holocaust, right, an attempt to murder a people. But if you're, you know, I, I, I'm going to get killed for this, but if you're working the numbers, I mean, we're talking about whole species, many species, going, you know, going extinct for forever every year. So, you know, I know people care more about people than they do plants and animals, and they, they, those kinds of comparisons make them very, very upset. But I, I always look at this question kind of neurobiologically. For a really long time, nobody kind of wanted, you know, dogs were, were research animals. And dogs are essentially, from an intelligence perspective, from an emotional perspective, we now they have the same six core emotions we do, the same social emotions we do. They're essentially four-year-old children in their IQ and vocabulary. And, you know, we do things to dogs that we would never do to four-year-old children. So people don't like it when you make those comparisons between, say, you know, the sixth great extinction and the Holocaust. But I don't think you're that far off. Hmm. Well, given all we've talked about, what gives you the optimism about the future found in your best-selling book, Abundance? Well, so you have to understand that what is at the core of abundance is this idea that right now, for the first time in history, because of four emerging forces, we have the possibility to significantly raise global standards of living and address many of our grand challenges. And the difficulty here is it's a race against time. Right? We, we're either going to drive ourselves into a world of abundance or we're going to wipe ourselves off the face of the earth. And we're not saying this is techno-utopianism. Our argument is not that this stuff happens automatically. It's that it is actually possible. We know how to... Su- I mean, we, even the sixth great extinction, like this is no mystery. We've known since the 60s, essentially, how to stop the sixth great extinction. You take a bunch of land away from people and you give it back to the plants and animals. You link up our, our, our national parks with migration corridors, and you stay out of the way. You give animals more space and more room to roam. We've known that since, you know, Michael Soule did his island biogeography work back in the 60s and 70s. It's not a mystery, right? We now have the technology that liberates that land. For example, cattle occupy one quarter of all the, all the land on the earth. We have in vitro meat. We can grow steak from stem cells, you know, painless beef grown from stem cells in bioreactors frees up a quarter of the land on the planet. We can repurpose that land for animals. This is, it's, it's not hard, and people are doing it. In fact, the U.S. military has been doing this you know, for 80 years. They've been setting up eco-barriers and migration corridors, and you know, they found it the most successful thing they could do to kind of fight off lawsuits from environmentalists, and it, you know, it, it works. It brings species back. We've seen it. We've got the proof. We know how to solve this. And we have the technology, and that's just one example. I could talk about vertical farms. I could go on and on about this stuff. But we have the technology to solve these problems. Are we going to do it is an open question. And I, you know, but what we are saying in abundance is, hey, wait a minute, this is actually now possible today. And we're also saying that 
a lot of the bad news you believe in is actually wrong. You have wrong information. And I'll just give you a couple of examples since we got in this direction. One of the things that's really, really tricky is that, take poverty, for example, it's something of a moving target. If you go back 100 years ago, the richest people on the planet did not have air conditioning, a cell phone, a telephone, a television, air conditioning, a car, flushing toilets, running water for that matter. Today, people living below the poverty line, 70% of people below the poverty line have access to all those things. So we keep moving moving the number, but if you go by, you know, current studies at current rates of decline, by current definitions of poverty, you know, and this is studies run in The Economist by top thinkers, we're going to end poverty by our current definition in 30 years. Or if you go, you know, you want to go back in time, poverty has been reduced more in the past 50 years than any point in the previous 500. According to Steven Pinker, we are living at the most peaceful time in the history of the human race. Any groceries are 13 times cheaper today than they were in the 1800s. The list goes kind of on and on um, about what's kind of going on. So there's actually a ton of really great news that we don't tend to look at. And by the way, the reason we don't look at it is because our brain is dominated by looking for danger. So we notice the negative much more than the positive. And, and that's like, you know, established psychological and, and neurobiological fact. Basically, for every kind of one positive thing that gets into your brain, you'll notice 10 negative things. That's so cool what you just said. You know, I've had this argument, too, with Brian Welch. He's the CEO of the company that publishes Mother Earth News, and he wrote a book, Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want. And he got me thinking, is it possible that we have so much trouble partly because we lack a vision of who we want to be? Oh, I think you hit it on the nail. I mean, I really, like, uh, we go where we look. And, I, and what I mean that is, like, we are literally hardwired biologically to go where we look. And, and, and this is a weird example. Do you surf by any chance? I did when I was younger. Okay. Have you ever ridden a tube? I never really got that good. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that happens when, you, when you're tube riding is when you, you, you pull into the wave, you make your bottom turn, and all you do is you look through the tube, because everything is happening at so high speed. So how do you surf a tube? You literally look through your t the tube, and your body goes where you look. Everything else sort of happens automatically. That's not just a surfing athletic phenomenon. That is how we are wired to work. I'll give you another crazy example, uh, and this comes out of, I run the Flow Genome Project. We study ultimate human performance. So this is stuff that comes out of the other side of the work I do and studies of ultimate human performance. But in ultimate human performance, there's something called the Bannister effect, and it's really peculiar. So Roger Bannister, as you probably know, is the first guy to run the four-minute mile. And before he did it, everybody thought it was impossible. There were New York Times op-eds written by doctors saying, look, he, the first person who runs a four-minute mile is going to die at the finish line. Forget a parade. You're going to need a hearse. And it took forever to do it. I mean, if you look at mile times, they went down by like a half a second, a fraction of a second, a decade for like 60 years. And then Bannister does it. And the next month, somebody beats his time. And a couple months after that, somebody else beats his time. And within 10 years, a teenager has beat his time. So what the hell? Right? The physical challenge running a four-minute mile did not change. It's still a sub-four-mile. It's really physically difficult. All that changed is the mental frame we build around the challenge. This is called the Bannister effect, and what it means is there's a very, very tight correlation between psychology and performance. You have to believe something is possible before it's possible. And there are, all, for all the reasons we've been talking about, kind of how the brain filters information, for all the reasons that you might imagine, this is, this is very, very true. So one of the things, 
you know, I often have said is if we want to solve a lot of problems, we could just start by getting the technologists and the environmentalists and the ecologists in the same room together so they see each other and hear each other and have to talk to each other. I really do believe, you know, the solutions are within our reach. But interest, I'll give you an interesting example. In abundance, for example, one of the things that we talk about is if you want to solve the biodiversity crisis, in vitro, coupling in vitro meat to vertical farms, two technologies that massively liberate land and repurposing this land for animals and plants. It's the center of the book. We talk about it in the book. And yet the book came out. It was a massive bestseller and in the hundreds of interviews and talks and speeches and whatever I've done about the book, nobody's ever asked me about that because nobody sees nature. They, they see all the other stuff we wrote about feeding people and getting people water and providing freedom and health care and education, all, all the people-centered stuff. But the animal stuff is still a, a, a giant mystery to people. So I think the solutions are there, and it's really important to know that they're there because we're hardwired to go where we look. Well, just as we wrap up, what is the Flow Genome Project? We are the largest kind of open source research project in ultimate human performance. We want to decode the science of ultimate human performance, and it's called the Flow Genome Project because flow is a technical term, scientific term, for a state of optimal performance. It's a state where we feel our best and we perform our best. And, And more specifically, it refers to those moments, I'm sure you've experienced them yourself, rapt attention, total absorption. You get so focused on what you're doing, everything else just vanishes. So action, awareness start to merge. Time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying you don't notice that it's passing. Five hours will go by in like five minutes. Your sense of self sort of disappears, self-consciousness, that voice in your head, that incessant chatter goes quiet. And performance, all aspects, go through the roof. And flow science sort of dates back about 150 years, but over the past 20 years, been a revolution in neurobiology. We've been able to look under the hood for the very first time, see where the state is coming from, see how, how it shows up, how we can get more of it. And so the Flow Genome Project is an organization of people who are dedicated to kind of decoding the science of flow, and we're training people up in it. So we're a research and a training organization. And on the training side, we work with everybody from kind of top athletes to the U.S. Special Forces to Fortune 500 companies. And we train people up in how to maximize flow and productivity and motivation and those sorts of things. Is there anything that I've missed that you'd like to pass on to our listeners or a new project you want to tell us about? The only thing I want to pass along is if, if, if this stuff is interesting to you, you can, you can find me online at stephencotler.com or at theflowgenomeproject.com or on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kotler, which is K-O-T-L-E-R. Well, we based this interview on Eco-Psychology and 10 Easy Lessons in Orion Magazine, and uh, I'll put a link to that on my blog at ecoshock.info. You may also be interested in Stephen Kotler's book, Tomorrowland, Our Journey from Science Fiction to Science Fact. That sounds good to me. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Ecoshock. Alex, my pleasure. Thank you. Radio Ecoshock reaches out to you every week from over 90 nonprofit radio stations in four countries and countless net stations. If you agree this program content is important, you can help. Please go ahead and forward the show widely. Tweet about it. Get it on Facebook. Play it for your friends. Thank you for helping me get the word out by extending the voice of our expert guests. Are you suffering from an existential crisis? Prescription Strength Nature may help you. Clinical studies have shown that nature can save you from your neutered existence. Being in nature can remind you that you have a body and that you're not the center of the universe. 
If you care more about selfies than preserving the natural beauty and wonder of the environment, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Our fake ad for nature, as the new pharmaceutical wonder drug was created by the folks at nature-rx.org. You can find the video version on YouTube with the link in my show blog at ecoshock.info. We'll finish up with a tune by Natalie Merchant. It's called It's a Comin'. I first saw this posted on Guy McPherson's blog, Nature Bats Last. Here are Natalie's opening words. Wildfires, dying lakes, landslides, hurricanes, apocalypse in store, nothing like ever seen before, it's a comin'. Third-generation refugees, street mobs, burning effigies, revolution, civil war, like nothing ever seen before, it's a comin'. Oh, 